1: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 265. I am your host, Tony C. Smith, Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I shouldn't complain, but we've got a little bit wet weather over here. It's a little bit miserable today, but I'm not saying anything more. Tell you what's coming to today's show. We have Adam with his Cheapskates Review. Then the main fiction is Search Engine by Mary Rosenbloom. So that is today's show. Before we, before we get into all that, just want to say a happy Thanksgiving to everyone over there on, on the other side of the pond in the USA. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Hope you have a fine, fine, fine time. And we are smack bang in the middle of Black Hole Week over at Starships. We are slashing the prices from that kind of batch of video lectures that I've been doing for a couple of years there now. So hopefully if, I mean, we've had some great take-ups on that little sale as well. This is the chance everything's half price over there. I'll, I'll run through what's on. Just, you know, give the lad a chance. He's got to flog his wares. But, you know, when you, when you kind of look back at what we've done or what's um, been on offer, this means, you know what I mean? It's just, I love it because I've just remembered there. We've got the time travel lecture. And we've got that, that's with our very own Amy here Sturgis, who just knows so much about time travel. It's scary. Then probably the best ever short story written on time travel, The Alchemist Skate. The Merchant in the Alchemist Gate by Ted Chang. Ted's in there as well. And Connie Willis. And what Connie Willis doesn't know about time travel is just, you know, it, it, it isn't. Not, not even worth knowing. So there's that lecture. Then we have the two narrator's workshops, which, you know, it's got Mike Boris in there, Kate Baker, Peter Seaton. All the kind of ones. Larry as well. In He's number one. All the people that were are kind of, oh, just inspirational, you know, fantastic narrators. They're in there giving their kind of insights and everything like that. Then we've got them two writers' workshops. And, uh, you know, a field writer. Yes. (laughs) I can hand on heart there, field writer. But just, you know, the kind of talent I, I was able to kind of get in there. Gregory Benford, Michael Swanick, James Patrick Kelly, Sheila Williams, Peter Watts, Nancy Cress, and Van der Meer. over them two shows. And that's actually been a popular take up on this little sale. There's been a number of people buying that. Then Amy's two lectures that she's done. These are kind of video lectures where you can actually watch Amy give her a presentation as well. Sherlock Holmes one and the Hunger Games one as well. Then just finished, you know, the, the Joe Haldeman one. We've got that in there. I put that, I was kind of debating whether to put that in, and I thought, ah, get it in. Do you know? Get it in. So we've got the Joe Haldeman how to write science fiction, which was just, do you know what I mean? I, I, can't, I can't remember if I've actually talked about it, but oh, I did, yes. Talk, you know, just about his experiences in Vietnam and the kind of the, the, the forever war, do you know what I mean? Just, wow. Then the kind of final one is the film and TV script workshop by Mark Zickreed, And actually, you know, rolling all this in together, Mark's doing you know doing his own one now on the web and then you've got this new blood and chrome one that's coming out as well there. So there's loads of opportunities if you kind of wanted to have a little dabble in that. Do you know what I mean? In kind of TV film scripts totally different from writing. Do you know what I mean? Just totally different. And then actually what's really proven popular is I actually put in as well the the original Starship Sovers the Hundred Shows from you know when myself and Kieran did did that that's half price as well. So all the video ones, all the kind of workshops, are normally kinda of in and Starship Sova's shop for thirty. They're all just kinda of half price at fifteen. And then the only one that's different is the Starship Sova original shoes. Normally 1499 at 750 there now in kind of in in, in British great pounds. So, there's a, on every site there's a link there. So hopefully, like I say, it runs out on the 24th of November. Start on the 19th and it's been, you know, it's been really good. But it, if there's a chance you ever wanted, you know, now's the chance. Like I say, the time travel one. Yeah, like Connie Willis, you know, Amy and Ted Chang talk about time travel. What more do you want, you know what I mean, for a kind of Sunday afternoon there. So hopefully you will take part in that and treat yourselves. So, first up then. We have Adam with his Cheapskates. Adam, sir.
3: Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam. Welcoming you to Cheapskates and bringing you reviews of free science fiction eBooks and audiobooks. No extras at the top today. Sorry, all. I'm doing Nano or National Novel Writing Month where you try to write 50,000 words, all in the month of November. At the time I'm recording this, I'm behind the pace for reaching 50,000 words, but well ahead of my usual writing pace of, well, nothing. So yeah, it's all good. Still, by the time you hear this, I'll probably be in the middle of that most productive of states, last-minute panic, so today's review is going to be rather to the point, I'm afraid. By the by, if you'd like to see what I've produced so far, look for a link on my blog, cheapskates.wordpress.com, for a free copy of my book as it's written, more or less in real time. The book's called Schrodinger's Zombie, Seven Weird and Wonderful Tales of the Undead, and is a collection of seven short stories taking an unconventional spin on the zombie concept. It's by definition a work in progress, so please be kind. Alright, so, it's been a while since I've addressed that free science fiction audiobooks portion of my intro, so I'll just get right into it with a review of some free audiobooks on PodioBooks.com. That's patio with a P. Namely, I think I'm going to take on the Anderson-Dexter series of audiobooks by Canadian author and two-time Parsec Award finalist M. Jerusha Wayne. Self-made... Act of Will, and The Beauty of Our Weapons. Some of you might recall that the last of these, The Beauty of Our Weapons, was featured in the First Chapter segment on the April 25th edition of Starship Sofa this year. I honestly didn't remember this fact, and it was only after I let Tony know my plans for the next episode that he brought my attention to its previous inclusion on the show. As seems to be typical with me, after I've listened to a podcast... They seem to sink into the huge wall of sound, if you will, and I'm hard-pressed to remember where or when I heard a particular story. So I hope you can believe me that I feel like I stumbled across these, honestly. If I selected this series because of their inclusion on First Chapters, it was only on a subliminal level. In my own defense, that First Chapters episode did come at the end of a three-hour episode, And it was the first chapter of the third book in the set, so there was a big learning curve to this world and plenty of opportunity for this first chapter's installment to slide off my brain of Teflon. No, what I feel attracted me to the series was not the first chapter segment, but actually the description of the first book self-made. I've struggled with how to introduce the world of Anderson Dexter novels, so I think I'll just start here. With a description on patio books that first drew me to download them. Quoting Ever wish things were different? Ivy Vesquiles did. So she became someone else. In the 3D virtual world Marionette City, you can be anything you want, but everyone still knows who you are. Driven by her desire for a new life, Ivy takes her future in her hands when she makes another identity for herself. A brilliant designer, Ivy works for one of the huge firms which control the online system the world relies upon for both business and pleasure. But one day, Ivy discovers that her alternate self, Reuben Cobalt, had been murdered. Since alternate identities are forbidden by the firms which control access to the Nets and to M-City, Ivy has nowhere to turn until she finds Anderson Dexter. Part private eye, part vigilante, and part cop, Dex sets out to recover Reuben's killer, since the firms control almost every aspect of life, including law and order. Justice for average people comes only at the hands of the outlaw organization to which Dex belongs. Self-made is a murder mystery set in a vision of a future that seems to lurk just over the horizon, but above all, it is a story of how people strive to control their own destinies and how that desire affects them and the people around them in ways they could never imagine. End quote. I mostly agree with that description. However, the series has much less to do with the character of Ivy than this introduction might suggest, and much more to do with Dexter, and his relationship with a fellow vigilante-slash-cop named Annabelle, whom he works with on the case. Annabelle, you might notice, doesn't even get a mention here. I also think the last sentence is a bit of our authorial hyperbole. I just don't see the story operating on that grand of a scale. But this is a small and forgivable sin. It is, in fact, one I've committed myself quite frequently in promoting myself. You have to do it. But I see these novels as providing lots of pulpy goodness, which a much lighter helping of, quote, high literary merit. So, a bit more on the setting. I see the basic premise is being quite similar to Ready Player One. The real world in general sucks and can be dangerous, but there's a virtual world that takes the edge off. However, there's still an antagonist who just might ruin it for everyone that must be defeated both virtually and in the real world. Some of you might remember my brief mention of Ready Player One when I was explaining how to get a free audiobook from Audible. I still heartily endorse the audiobook version of Ready Player One, especially because it's narrated by the one and only Will Wheaton. Probably better known to you as Wesley Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation, or possibly in his Evil Will incarnation on Big Bang Theory, or if you're a super nerd as the host of the web show Tabletop, which each week takes viewers on a tour of another great game for gamers. Tabletop shares space with the matchless Felicia Day on the geek and sundry collection of web shows, this being the Felicia Day, who starred as a heroine of Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, directed by the same Joss Whedon, known for directing The Avengers and creating Firefly, and starring as the sympathetic villain Neil Patrick Harris, probably best known for his role as Doogie Howser on the classic show by the same name. Alright, I realize that was a rabbit hole of epic proportions, but those of you keeping score at home might notice that I mentioned about a dozen awesome things right there. Feel free to rewind and collect them all. Okay, back to where I left the path to go tripping through the nerdy woods. Where Anderson-Dexter differs from Ready Player One, I see mostly in two areas. First, that the technology to simulate virtual environments is not just external to the user, but implanted into their very cortex using customizable nodes. This can lead to an astonishingly realistic experience for those with enough upgrades, enough so that some come to prefer who they are in the simulation over the real world. There's also some fun consequences of this, For example, I especially love the detail about downloading a large file making their head feel heavier. This makes no sense from a physics standpoint, but somehow it still feels right to me. Second, there's a flavor of pulp detective novels that the books are set in. This, more than anything else, I think is what drew me into the books. As a good detective story in a sci-fi environment is an irresistible combo for me. Take as exhibit A on my shelves Isaac Asimov's Lij Bailey and R. Daniel Oliva novels, The Caves of Steel, The Naked Sun, and The Robots of Dawn. Exhibit B is a short story collection I continue to revisit The Thirteen Crimes of Science Fiction. These are what I consider the epitome of that new favorite buzzword speculative fiction. Let's listen to a bit of Weems' Patio Books narration to give you just a little sense of the style and feel.
0: The memory of the meeting was fresh but imperfect, so Dex paged over to his viewer. His hands tripped across the space in front of him, moving files and links out of his view. The space he was sitting in was close, but there was enough room for him to easily wave his arms around. He could have expanded his viewer's size to maybe even double without having to worry about whacking his neighbor. He'd found the file he wanted, and the video image of his meeting the previous day imposed itself over his vision. Dex, like most people, used one eye for one task, the other eye for another one, with the whole mess at about 80% opacity, so he could just still see the physical world in front of him. At work, he didn't really need to see it all, but you never can be too careful. Just because he kept his own screen at a reasonable size didn't mean that someone nearby, playing with the resolution wouldn't inadvertently punch him in the head while just trying to delete some mail. He flicked a finger to start running the file, but then a chime sounded. Fuck. A call. He'd have to answer it, since that was how he kept his job and got paid. He quickly flicked his fingers in front of him, simultaneously hiding the file, opening a program on the company's system, and answering the call. "'Barrett and Brower Upgrades. How may I help you make a better you?' Dex gave the required greeting, then listened as the customer explained how his new neural sensation enhancer was malfunctioning. Dex had to suppress a chuckle as the guy at the other end of the call's voice quivered as he spoke. Dex ran through the troubleshooting procedures with the caller, but early on down the litany of questions about configuration and whether the customer had actually turned the unit on, his mind wandered back to the meeting with his
3: new client. And his real job. Dexter's real job, it turns out, is working for a group called the Cubicle Men. These are folks ostensibly working menial corporation jobs, largely customer service, but who in their spare time and while they're working at the mind-numbing tedium of their real job use that extra brain capacity to solve crimes and enforce vigilante justice for those who can't afford to approach corporations to find a solution. Dexter is a gumshoe detective in The Cubicle Men, and seems to be pretty good at his work. In Self-Made, he helps I- Ivy discover who committed the virtual murder of her secret multi-avatar, Reuben. I have to admit the whole cubicle-man aspect was enormously appealing to me. I've been stuck in my share of dead-end cubicle-dwelling jobs myself, and I can relate to that sense of hopelessness, of asking yourself every day, just what the heck am I doing here anyway? I can see how a group like this could supply intriguing work and meaning in an otherwise meaningless life. I had trouble in this first book buying into the concept at first. I just really had a hard time understanding why this society was having such a hard time accepting the idea of Maltese. In our internet age, it seems perfectly natural to me that there would be different ways and even different names you'd present yourself under, depending on the audience and purpose. Then I realized that we uses Maltese as a stand-in for all kinds of issues of identity in our society, mostly those of the LGBT variety. Creating a Maltese in a society would be akin to the effect that, say, coming out as transgender would have in our own. That is, it completely reframes a person's identity— in a way fundamental to that society. I still don't quite see a way that the world of today bridges over into the world of Anderson Dexter, but at least I can appreciate what Weem is going for here. The second novel in the series, Act of Will, is a straightforward serial killer story. Someone is selecting people, who he calls candidates, to be killed at his hand. Apparently, not wishing to inflict pain, he takes advantage of people's cybernetic implants and uses a device that induces pleasure rather than agony with each cut as he reduces his victims to ribbons. He, of course, makes a mistake of crossing Dexter, selecting one of our hero's acquaintances as one of his victims. This gets our detective's attention and pursuit. I did rather wish that this story had gone a little deeper into the mind of the serial killer. He's selecting his victims, and the fact that his victim is his choice seems to be important. But it's never really made clear what criteria he's using in making that choice. I think part of what makes a serial killer tale so interesting is that it takes us to scary, unfamiliar territory and helps us to get a bit of understanding into the mind of a predator. It's conspicuously absent in Active Will, and I felt like the overall novel fell flat because of it. Another problem I had was just how easily the pieces seemed to come together for Dexter when he's solving a mystery. Part of the appeal of a mystery story for me is seeing how the detective's mind works, especially if it's in genius ways that I would not have considered. I like being odd. But with Dexter, the pieces just seem to fall into his lap, He rarely has a dead end, and his usual solution to a wrong path is to let it sit and go get a drink. I think this is as a result of two factors in the story. First, in a world where information is ubiquitous and searchable, there's very little pounding of pavement. You just set the search parameters, let them run, and come back a few hours later to have it spit out answers. Useful, yes but it does not do much for driving plot. The second issue seems to be, unfortunately, also the result of the most interesting relationship in the series, the romantic connection between Annabelle and Dexter. Annabelle also happens to be a crack programmer and hacker, so whenever Dexter needs those skills, he just hands it off to Annabelle, and again, waits a while for the answers to come back. I would say the final book of the series the Beauty of Our Weapons, is also my favorite of the bunch, because Dexter does solve at least part of the mystery with his own logic and cunning, apart from the help of anyone else involved. I also like that it has a more complex and multi-layered solution, and that it's more of an epic, if somewhat faceless, foe by the end. The basic premise of this one, by the way, is that someone out is out there vandalizing parts of Marionette City, and in particular, an online church which has created an interesting religious idea around the idea of virtual worlds and their relation to reality. The book also, unfortunately, has Dex dropping his day job to work as a freelancer detective full-time, so I feel like it reduces some of that wish fulfillment I always enjoyed in the first two books to get away from the day job. There's probably a lot more I could write about these three books. There's a lot more sci-fi elements I haven't even touched on here, including food bricks, extended lifetimes, virtual substance consumption, and so on. But, well, I should be writing my own words before I get more behind on this crazy novel project. Give these novels by Weem a try. I do think you'll enjoy them, and if you don't, I think you'll realize it pretty quickly. A word to the young and the squeamish, however, these books do require a pretty mature understanding of identity of all sorts, but especially gender and sexual identity, though the descriptions were never particularly graphic. There's also a fair share of violence, though again, most is left up to the reader to fill in the blanks. If these kinds of subjects aren't for you, then you might want to think about whether these books are for you, too. I'll post the links to the free audiobooks as well as Weems' site on my own site. Uh, Again, that's cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com. Well, that's all for today, Cheapskates. Theme music is from Regarding Your Brains by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial license. You can find Jonathan's work at www.jonathancolton.com. This is Adam, reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go. Might have some interesting news with
2: Adam as well coming soon. Do look out for that. Next up is the main fiction, and it's by Mary Rosenbloom. Mary's story this time, and we've played a number of stories from... Mary Rosenblum. We've done jumpers, which I no idea when it came. Back back in the history of Starships over. We've done a number of stories by Mary. And just. It's Mary's to me. It just. It's what science fiction stories are. These are kind of the kind of the, the, top, of the ch- top of the tree stories. These are the kind of goodness. Like Mary and you know, the likes of Alan Steele. Just great storytellers. And I've got Talking about Alan Steele, that's why I remember Alan's name. I've got just a story by him, which I'm going to kind of rant and rave about for getting on the Hugo Ballot this year. Fantastic story. And it's getting narrated by Nathan as well, Nathan Lowell. So do look out for that. What a story. But talking about Mary. Search Engine. This came out in 2005, and it was just up for, you know, it was in for everything. It came out in Analog Science Fiction, like I say, in September 2005, Then it was in the year's best science fiction 23rd annual collection edited by Gardner doz Then it came in the science fiction, the best of the year 2006 edition, which was edited by Rich Horton. Then the mammoth book of best new science fiction 19th annual collection by Gardner doz again. Science fiction, the best of the year 2006 by Rich Horton. And Rewind, Rewired, sorry, the post-cyberpunk anthology. By, edited by James Patrick Kelly and John Kessel. Just everyone in the field kind of knows this is a cracking story. So Mary, and Mary hasn't wrote a story. I think it's 2009, the last one, which was Dragonstorm. You know, I'll keep on saying to Mary, Mary, you've got to write more stories, man. And she is, because she says she's been teaching and doing a lot, and then I'd been moving house. And there's been lots of things getting in the way. And then at the end of it, I've kind of been corresponding with Mary. At the end of it, she says she took a dive off a, off a ladder and bru— I don't know, bruised ribs, cracked ribs, and all sorts of little injuries. And I was thinking, what, Mary? Our rubbish been, thats it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm on this sick forever. So, Mary, listen. I hope you are getting well soon. So, you know, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. Get ready and get scribbling. 2009 is just such a long time ago for. Your kind of quality of writing, you know, Mary. Mary teaches writing. Do you know what I mean? It's not it's just kind of a little hobby. This is kind of her bread and butter. Which but is lovely to have some n- new short stories by Mary and new novels. I mean, a last novel, Horizons, two thousand six. And I can remember when you know Starship kicked off. That book was kind of doing the rounds and everything, and everyone was praising Horizons. She also got you know, if anyone's interested in Mary's work, The Dry Lands, nineteen ninety three. Chimera came out in 1993. Then the Stone Garden, 1995. And then, like, say, Horizons, 2006. A couple of collections in there as well. So, you know, there is some work out there by Mary, but we need some more, Mary. We need some more. This story is narrated by, you know, I didn't want to kind of give it anywhere. I want to make sure I'd get looked after by Mike Boris as well. Mike Boris, audio, so Mike. And he's had this a bloody while as well. Mike, thank you very much. He got himself a job. As well, Mike, so now everything's kind of busy, busy, busy for Mike, and you've got to just kind of, you know, you've just got to kind of... I've got to accept that, you know, my babies are moving on, and I've just got to wait for them coming back home. So, <laughs> so, Mike, honestly, thank you so much for this. What a cracking narration. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present...
1: Search Engine by Mary Rosenblum. man's eyelids twitched as the tiny skull and crossbones icon flashed across his retinal screen. Uh Uh-oh. He blinked away the image and scowled at the office door. The feds. Sit tight and pay attention, he said to the new kid sitting in the chair beside the desk. What's up? New kid leaned forward. But the door was already opening, the soft whisper as it slid aside a reassurance that this was a high-end operation, that your money was being spent wisely. The real-life physical office— the expensive woolen carpet and real wood furniture echoed that reassurance. No sleazy virtual private eye here. You were at the top of the ladder in a hard office. Not that the suit cared. He took off his shades, slipped them into the pocket of his very well-made business tunic, and fixed icy gray eyes on Amon's face. If he didn't like what he saw, he was too well-trained to let it show. Mr. Boutros. The suit didn't offer his hand— sat down immediately in the chair across from the desk, cast New Kid a single pointed glance. Jimmy. Amon remembered his name at last. Raoul's latest, given to him to babysit and maybe even train. My assistant, Amon put finality in the tone. New Kid stays. He kept his body language relaxed and alpha, waited out the suit's evaluation of his options, inclined his head at the suit's very slight nod. He won that round, You won when you could. How may I help you? The suit pulled a small leather case from inside his tunic, slipped a tiny data disk from it. Without a word, Amon extended a port. Clients did not store their files on the net. Not if they were paying search engines fees. The disk clicked into place and Amon's desktop lit up. A man's head and shoulders appeared in the hollow field, turning slowly. Medium dark, about twenty... Mixed Euro-African and Hispanic genes, Amon noted. About the same phenotype as New Kid, Jimmy. A history of war, rape, and pillage made flesh. The runner's scalp gleamed naked, implanted with fiber-like gang sign. Amon read it and sighed, thinking of his fight with Avi over his fiber lights. Tattoo your political incorrectness on your body for the cops, son. Just in case they don't notice you on their own. Stupid move, Avi. That hadn't been the final argument, but it had been damn close. Several data file icons floated at the bottom of the field: food preferences, clothing, personal services, sex. Aman nodded because the feds knew what he needed, and it would all be here. "Urgency?" he asked. "High." The suit kept his eyes on the runner's light-scribed profile. Aman nodded. Jimmy was getting tense. He didn't even have to look at him; the kid was radiating Amon touched the icon bubbles, opening the various files, hoping Jimmy would keep his mouth shut. Frowning because you never wanted the client to think it was going to be easy, he scanned the rough summary of the runner's buying habits. Bingo. He put his credit card where his politics were. No problem, this one. He was going to stand up and wave to get their attention. Four days, he said. Start high and bargain. Plus or minus ten percent. Twenty-four hours. The suit's lips barely moved. Interesting. Why this urgency? Amon shook his head. No kinky sex habits, no drugs, so they'd have to depend on clothes and food. Legal trade data files took longer. 3.5, he finally said, with a failure exemption clause. They settled on 48 hours with no failure exemption. 10% bonus if you get him in less. The suit stood. For a moment, he looked carefully and thoroughly at Jimmy, storing his image in the Bioware overlay his kind had been enhanced with. If he ran into Jimmy on the street a hundred years from now, he'd remember him. Jimmy had damn well better hope it didn't matter. They really want this guy. Jimmy waited for the green light to come on over the door, telling them that the suit hadn't left anything behind that might listen. The runner's wearing gayest sign. No kidding, Amon knew that scrawl by heart. What did he do? How the hell should I know? Amon touched one of the file icons, closing his eyes as his BioWare downloaded and displayed on his retina. That had been the final argument with Avi. Oh, so we just do what we're told? I get it. Jimmy leaned back, propped a boot up on the corner of the desktop. Say, yes, sir, no questions asked, huh? Who cares about the reason, as long as there's money? He's government. Amon blinked the display away, ignored Jimmy's boot. Why in the name of everyone's gods had Raoul hired this wet-from-birth child? Well, he knew why. Amon eyed the kid's slender, androgynous build. His boss had a thing for the African-Hispanic phenotype. Once, he'd kept it out of the business. Amon suppressed a sigh, wondering if the kid had figured it out yet, why Raoul had hired him. How much of the data dredging that you do is legal? He watched Jimmy think about that. You think we're that good, huh? Nobody ever busts us? There's always a price, kid, especially for success. Jimmy took his foot off the desktop. The whole crackdown on the gayists is just crap. Bread and circus move because the North American alliance, aman held up his hand. Good thing you don't write it on your head in light, he said mildly. Just don't talk politics with Raoul. Jimmy flushed. So how come you let him back you down from four days? And Zoyan is already backed up with the Ferriger search. We won't need Zoyan. Aman nodded at the icons. A runner is organic, vegan, artisan craft only in clothes and personal items. You could find him all by yourself in about four hours. But if he's buying farm-raised and handmade, Jimmy frowned. No universal tags on those. Amon promised himself a talk with Raul, but it probably wouldn't change anything. Not until he got tired of this one, anyway. Get real. He got up and crossed through the small, nondescript desktop at the back of the office, camouflaged by an expensive Japanese shoji screen. This was the real workspace. Everything else was stage prop, meant to impress clients. You sell stuff without a U-tag and you suddenly find you can't get a license, or your E. coli count is too high for an organic permit or your hand-spinning operation might possibly be a front for drug smugglers. He laughed. Everything has a U-tag in it. Which wasn't quite true, but knowledge was power. Jimmy didn't have any claim on power yet. Not for free. Okay, Jimmy shrugged. I'll see if I can beat your four hours. Start with sex? He's not a buyer. I'll do it. How come? Jimmy bristled. Isn't it too easy for you? Even if I can do it? "'Aman hesitated, because he wasn't really sure himself. "'I just am.' "'He sat down at his work desk as Jimmy stomped out, "'brought up his secure field and transferred the files to it. "'The runner got his sex for free or not at all, "'so no point in searching that. "'Food was next on the immediacy list. "'Aman opened his personal searchware "'and fed the runner's ID chip print into it. "'He wasn't wearing his ID chip anymore,' or the suit wouldn't have showed up here. Nobody had figured out yet how to make the birth implanted ID chip really permanent, although they kept trying. Amon's AI stretched its thousand thousand fingers into the data sphere and started hitting all the retail data pools. Illegal, of course, and retail purchase data was money in the bank, so it was well protected. But if you were willing to pay, you could buy from the people who were better than the people who created the protection. Search Engine Incorporated was willing to pay. Sure enough, forsale.data had the kids profile. They were the biggest. Most of the retailers fed directly to them. Amon pulled the runners raw consumables data. For sale profiled, but his AI synthesized a profile to fit the specific operation. Amon waited the 30 seconds while his AI digested the raw dates amounts prices of every consumable item the runner had purchased, from the first credit he spent at a store to the day he paid to have a back-alley cutter remove his ID chip. Every orange, every stick of gum, every bottle of beer carried an RNA signature, and every purchase went into the file that had opened the day the runner was born and his personal ID chip implanted. The A.I. finished. The runner was his son's age, mid-twenties. He looked younger testament to the powers of his vegetarian and organic diet? Amon smiled sourly. Avi would appreciate that. That had been an early fight and a continued excuse when his son needed one. Amon scanned the grocery profile. It had amazed him, when he first got into this field, how much food reflected each person's life and philosophy. As a child, the runner had eaten a typical North American diet, with a short list of personal specifics that Amon skipped. He had become a gayist at 19. The break was clear in his profile, with the sudden and dramatic shift of purchases from animal proteins to fish and then vegetable proteins only. Alcohol purchases flatlined, although marijuana products tripled, as did wild-harvest hallucinogenic mushrooms. As he expected, the illegal drug purchase history revealed little. The random nature of his purchases suggests that he bought the drugs for someone else, or a party event rather than for regular personal consumption. No long-term addictive pattern. A brief steady purchase rate of an illegal psychotropic, coupled with an increase in food purchase volume, suggested a lover or live-in friend with an addiction problem, however. The sudden drop-off suggested a breakup, or a death. The food purchases declined in parallel, On a whim, because he had time to spare, Amon had his A.I. correlate the drop-off of the drug purchase to the news media database for Northwestern North America, the region where the drug purchases were made. Bingo! A twenty-year-old woman had died within eighteen hours of the last drug purchase. His lover? Dead from an overdose? Amon's eyes narrowed. The cause of death was listed as heart failure, but his A.I. had flagged it. Continue, He waited out the seconds of his A.I.'s contemplation. Insufficient data, it murmured in its androgynous voice. Continue? Amon hesitated because searches like this cost money and the connection was weak, if there at all. Continue. No real reason, but he had learned long ago to follow his hunches. He was the last one out of the office, as usual. The receptionist said goodnight to him as he crossed the plush reception area her smile as fresh as it had been just after dawn this morning. As the door locked behind him, she turned off. Real furniture and rugs meant money and position. Real people meant security risks. The night watchman, another holographic metaphor, wished him good night as he crossed the small lobby. Koi swam in the holographic pond surrounded by blooming orchids. Huge vases of flowers, lilies today, graced small tables against the wall. The display company had even included scent with the hollows. The fragrance of lilies followed Amon out onto the street. He took a pedal taxi home, grateful that for once the small, wiry woman on the seat wasn't interested in conversation as she leaned on the handlebars and pumped them through the evening crush in the streets. He couldn't get the suit out of his head tonight. Jimmy was right. The gayists were harmless back-to-the-land types, The Feds wanted this kid for something other than his politics, although that might be the media reasons. Absently, Amon watched the woman's muscular back as she pumped them past street vendors hawking food, toys, and legal drugs, awash in a river of strolling, eating, buying people. He didn't ask why much anymore. Sweat slicked the driver's tawny skin like oil. Maybe it was because the runner was the same age as Avi and a gayist as well. Amon reached over to tap the bell, and before the silvery chime had died, the driver had swerved to the curb. She flashed him a grin at the tip as he thumbprinted her reader, then she sped off into the flow of taxis and scooters that clogged the streets. Amon ducked into the little grocery on his block, enjoying the relief of its nearly empty aisles this time of night. He grabbed a plastic basket from the stack by the door and started down the aisles. "'You opened the last orange juice today.' The store's major-domo spoke to him in a soft maternal voice as he strode past the freezer cases. True. The store's major-domo had scanned his ID chip as he entered, then uplinked to SmartShopper.net, the inventory control company he subscribed to. It had searched his personal inventory file to see if he needed orange juice, and the major-domo had reminded him. He tossed a pouch of frozen juice into his basket. The price displayed on the basket handle a running total that grew slowly as he added a couple of frozen dinners and a packaged salad. The Willamette Vineyard's Pinot Gris is on sale this week. The major-domo here at the wine aisle used a rich male voice. Three dollars off. That was his favorite white. He bought a bottle and made his way to the checkout gate to thumbprint the total waiting for him on the screen. Don't we make it easy. Amon looked up to find Jimmy lounging at the end of the checkout kiosks. "'You following me?' Amon loaded his groceries into a plastic bag. "'Or is this a genuine coincidence?' "'I live about a block from your apartment,' Jimmy shrugged. "'I always shop here.' He hefted his own plastic bag. "'Buy you a drink?' "'Sure,' Amon said, to atone for not bothering to know where the newbie lived.' They sat down at one of the sidewalk tables next to the grocery, an island of stillness in the flowing river of humanity. "'The usual?' the table asked politely. They both said yes, and Amon wondered what Jimmy's usual was, and realized Jimmy was already drunk. His eyes glittered and a thin film of sweat gleamed on his face. Not usual behavior. He looked over the intoxicant profiles himself when they were considering applicants. Amon sat back as a petite woman set a glass of stout in front of him and a mango margarita in front of Jimmy. Amon sipped creamy foam and bitter beer, watched Jimmy down a third of his drink in one long swallow. What's troubling you? You profile all the time. Jimmy set the glass down a little too hard. Orange slurry sloshed over the side, crystals of salt sliding down the curved bowl of the oversized glass. Does it ever get to you? Does what get to me? That suit owned you, Jimmy stared at him. That's what you told me. They just think they do. Amon kept his expression neutral as he sipped more beer. Think of it as a trade. They're going to crucify that guy, right? Or whack him. No fuss, no muss. The government doesn't assassinate people, Amon said mildly. Like hell, not in public, that's for sure. Well, the indication had been there in Jimmy's profile. He had been reading in the Fringe e for a long time and had belonged to a couple of political action groups that were on the yellow list from the government. Not quite in the red zone, but close. But the best profilers came from the Fringe. You learned early to evaluate people well when you had to worry about betrayal. I guess I just thought I was working for the good guys, you know? Some asshole crook, a bad dealer, maybe the jerks who dump their kids on the public. Uh, But this... He emptied his glass. Another. He banged the glass down on the table. You have exceeded the legal limit for operating machinery, the table informed him in a sweet motherly voice. I will call a cab if you wish. Just let me know. A moment later, the server set his fresh margarita down in front of him and whisked away his empty. Privacy. What a joke. Jimmy stared at his drink, words slurring just a bit. I bet there's a record of my dumps in some database or other. Maybe how many times you flush. Ha <laughs> Jimmy looked at him blearily, the booze hitting him hard and fast now. When do you stop asking why, huh? Or did you ever ask? Come on, Amon stood up. I'll walk you home. You're going to fall down. I'm not that drunk, Jimmy said, but he stood up. Amon caught him as he swayed. "'Guess I am,' Jimmy laughed loudly enough to make Head's turn. (laughs) "'Guess I should get used to it, huh? Like you!' "'Let's go,' Amon moved him, not all that gently. "'Tell me where we're going.' "'We?' "'Just give me your damn address.' Jimmy recited the number, sulky and childlike again, stumbling and lurching in spite of Amon's steadying arm. It was one of the cheap and trendy loft towers that had sprouted as the neighborhood got popular. Jimmy was only on the sixth floor, not high enough for a pricey view, not on his salary. The door unlocked and lights glowed as the unit scanned Jimmy's chip and let them in. Music came on, a retro-punk nostalgia band that Amon recognized. A cat padded over and eyed them greenly, its golden fur just a bit ratty. It was real, Amon realized with a start. Jimmy had paid a hefty fee to keep a flesh-and-blood animal in the unit. I I gotta throw up, Jimmy mumbled, his eyes wide. They made it to the tiny bathroom, barely. Afterward, Amon put him to bed on the pull-out couch that served as a bed in the single loft room. Jimmy passed out as soon as he hit the pillow. Amon left a wastebasket beside the couch and a big glass of water with a couple of old-fashioned aspirin on the low table beside it. The cat stalked him, glaring accusingly. So he rummaged in the cupboards of the tiny kitchenette, found cat food pouches and emptied one onto a plate, set it on the floor. The cat stalked over its tail in the air. It would be in the database that Jimmy owned a cat. And tonight's bender would be added to his intoxicant profile, the purchase of the margaritas tallied neatly, flagged because this wasn't usual behavior. If his productivity started to fall off, Raul would look at that profile first. He'd find tonight's drunk. Hey! Amon paused at the door, looked back. Jimmy had pushed himself up on one elbow, eyes blurry with booze. Thanks for feeding him. I'm not a drunk, but you know that, right? Yeah, Amon said, I know that. I knew him. Today, Darren. We were friends. Kids together, you know? Were you ever a kid? Suits gonna kill him. You could tell. Tears leaked from the corners of his eyes. How come? You didn't even ask. You didn't even ask me if I knew him. Damn. He never even thought of looking for a connection there. I'm sorry, Jimmy, Amon said gently. But Jimmy had passed out again, head hanging over the edge of the sofa. Amon sighed and retraced his steps, setting the kid on the cushions again. Bad break for the kid. He stared down at Jimmy's unconscious sprawl on the couch bed. Why? Didn't matter. The suit wouldn't have told him the truth, but Jimmy was right. He should have asked. He thought about today's profile of the runner, that break where he had changed what he ate, what he wore, what he spent his money on. You could see the break. What motivated it? That you could only guess at. What would Avi's profile look like? No way to know. Avi's break had been a back cutter. Amon closed the door and listened to the unit lock it behind him. He carried his groceries the few scant blocks to his own modest condo tower. No music came on with the lights, no cat, just Danish furniture and an antique Afghani carpet knotted by the childhood fingers of women who were long dead now. He put the food away, stuck a meal in the microwave, and thought about pouring himself another beer. But the stout he'd drunk with Jimmy buzzed in his blood like street-grade amphetamine. He smiled crookedly, thinking of his grandfather, a devout man of Islam, and his lectures about the demon's blood alcohol. It felt like demon's blood tonight. The microwave chimed. Amon set the steaming tray on the counter to cool, sat down cross-legged on the faded wool patterns of crimson and blue, and blinked his Bioware open. His AI had been working on the profile. It presented him with five options. Amon settled down to review the runner's profile first. It wasn't all a matter of data. You could buy a search AI and if that was all there was to it, search engine Inc. wouldn't be in business. Intuition mattered, the ability to look beyond the numbers and sense the person behind them. Amon ran through the purchases, the candy bars, the vid downloads for the lonely times, the gifts that evoked a misty presence of a girlfriend, the hope of love expressed in single, cloned roses, in Belgian chocolate, and tickets in pairs. They came and went, three of them for sure. He worried about his weight or maybe just his muscles for a while, buying gym time and special foods. Someone died. Amon noted the payment for flowers, the crematorium, a spike in alcohol purchases for about three months. And then, the break. Curious, Amon opened another file from the download the suit had given him, read the stats. Darren had been a contract birth, the new way for men to have children. Mom had left for a career as an engineer on one of the orbital platforms. Nanny, private school. The flowers had been for Dad, dead at 54 from a brain aneurysm. He had joined the gayists after his father had died. Unlike Avi, who hadn't waited. Amon looked again at the five profiles the AI had presented. All featured organic, wild-harvest, natural fiber purchasing profiles. Three were still local. One had recently arrived in Montreal. Another had arrived in the Confederacy of South America, in the state of Brazil. Amon scanned the data. That one. He selected one of the local trio. The purchases clustered northeast of the city in an area that had been upscale suburb once was a squalid cash worker settlement now. He was walking. Couldn't use mass transit without a chip, and he didn't have access to a vehicle, clearly. Naive. Aman let his breath out slowly. Frightened. A little kid with his head under the sofa cushions, thinking he was invisible that way. He wondered sometimes if he could find Avi. It would be a challenge. His son knew how he worked. He knew how to really hide. Amon had never looked. On a whim he called up the AI's flag from his earlier search. It had flagged the woman who had died, who had probably been a live in friend or lover. This time, the A.I. presented him with clustered drug overdose deaths during the past five years. A glowing question mark tagged the data. Crimson, which meant a continuation would take him into secure and unauthorized data. Pursue it? He almost said no. All right, Jimmy. He touched the blood-colored question mark. Continue. It vanished. Searching secure government data files was going to cost— He hoped he could come up with a reason for Raoul if he caught it. His legs wanted to cramp when Amon finally blinked out of his bioware and got stiffly to his feet. The AI hadn't yet finished its search of the DEA data files. The meal tray on the counter was cold and it was well past midnight. He stuck the tray in the tiny fridge and threw himself down on the low couch, like Jimmy, but not drunk on margaritas. In the morning, he messaged Raul that he wasn't feeling well and asked if he should come in. As expected, Raul told him, no way, go get a screen before you come back. You could count on Raul with his paranoia about bioterrorism. It wasn't entirely a lie. He wasn't feeling well. Well covered a lot of turf. The AI had nothing for him on the overdose cluster it had flagged, and that bothered him. There wasn't a lot of security that could stop it. He emailed Jimmy, telling him to work on the Sauza search on his own, and attached a couple of non-secure files that would give him something he could handle in what would surely be a fuzzy and hungover state of mind. He found the clothes he needed at the back of his closet, an old worn tunic shirt and grease-stained pair of jeans. He put on a pair of scuffed and worn-out boots he'd found in a city recycle center years ago, then caught a ped cab to the light rail and took the northeast run he paid cash to the wary driver and used it to buy a one-way entry to the light rail. Not that cash hit his movements. He smiled grimly as he found a seat. His ped cab and light rail use had been recorded by Citizen.net, the data company favored by most transportation systems. It would just take someone a few minutes longer to find out where he had gone today. City ran out abruptly in the belt a no-man's land of abandoned warehouses and the sagging shells of houses inhibited by squatters, the chipless bilge of society. Small patches of cultivation suggested an order to the squalid chaos. As the train rocketed above the sagging roofs and scrubby brush that had taken over, he caught a brief snapshot glimpse of a round-faced girl peering up at him from beneath a towering fountain of rose canes thick with bright pink blossoms. Her shift, surprisingly clean and bright, matched the color of the roses perfectly, and she waved suddenly and wildly as the train whisked him on past. He craned his neck to see her, but the curve of the track hit her instantly. At his stop he stepped out with a scant handful of passengers, women mostly, and a couple of men, returning from a night of cleaning or doing custom handwork for the upscale clothiers. None of them looked at him as they plodded across the bare and dirty concrete of the platform, but a sense of observation prickled the back of his neck why would anyone be following him? But Amon loitered to examine the melon slices and early apples hawked by a couple of bored boys at the end of the platform. He haggled a bit, then spun around and walked quickly away, which earned him some inventive epithets from the taller of the boys. No sign of a shadow. Amon shrugged and decided on nerves. His A.I.'s lack of follow-up data bothered him more with every passing minute. The rising sun already burned the back of his neck as he stepped off the platform and into the street. The houses here were old, roofs sagging or covered with cheap plastic siding, textured to look like wood and lapped to shed rain. It was more prosperous than the no-man's-land belt around the city center, but not by much. Vegetables grew in most of the tiny yards, downspouts-fed hand-dug cisterns and small semi-legal stands offered vegetables— homemade fruit drinks, snacks, and various services, much like the street vendors on his block, but out here the customers came to the vendors and not the other way around. He paused at a clean-looking stand built in what had been a parking strip and bought a glass of vegetable juice made in front of his eyes in an antique blender. The woman washed the vegetables in a bucket of muddy water before she chopped them into the blender, but he smelled chlorine as he leaned casually on the counter. Safe enough. His vaccinations were up to date, so he took the glass without hesitation and drank the spicy, basil-flavored stuff. He didn't like basil particularly, but he smiled at her. "'Has Darren been by today?' He hazarded the runner's real name on the wild chance that he was too naive to have used a fake. "'He was supposed to meet me here. Betty overslept.' Her face relaxed a bit, her smile more genuine. "'Of course,' she shrugged, relaxing. "'Doesn't he always?' I usually see him later on, like noon. And she laughed a familiar and comfortable, we're-all-friends laughter. He was using his real name. Amon sipped some more of the juice, wanting to shake his head. Little kid with his head under the friendly sofa cushions. A figure emerged from a small square block of a house, nearly invisible beneath a huge tangle of kiwi and kudzu vines, and headed their way. Walking briskly, his hand-woven natural-dyed tunic as noticeable as a bright balloon on this street. Loose, drawstring pants woven of some tan fiber and the string of carved beads around his neck might as well have been a neon arrow pointing. "'Ah, there he is,' Amon said, and the woman's glance and smile confirmed his guess. Aman waited until the runner's eyes were starting to sweep his way, then stepped quickly forward. "'Darren, it's been forever!' He threw his arms around the kid, hugging him like a long-lost brother, doing a quick cheek kiss that allowed him to hiss into the shocked kid's ear. Act like we're old friends, and maybe the feds won't get you. Don't blow this. The kid stiffened, panic-tensing all his muscles. Fear sweat sour in Amon's nostrils. For a few seconds, the kid thought it over. Then his muscles relaxed all at once. So much so that Amon's hands tightened instinctively on his arms. He started to tremble. Come on, let's take a walk, Amon said. I'm not here to bust you. Let me get some juice. No. Amon's thumb dug into the nerve plexus in his shoulder, and the kid gasped. Walk. He twisted the kid around and propelled him down the street, away from the little juice kiosk, his body language suggesting two old friends out strolling, his arm companionably over the kid's shoulder, hiding the kid's tension with his own body thumb exerting just enough pressure on the nerve to remind the kid to behave. You are leaving a trail a blind infant could follow, he said conversationally, felt the kid's jerk of reaction. I'm not chipped, angry bravado tone. You don't need to be chipped. That just slows the search down a few hours. You went straight from the hack dock to here, walked through the belt because you couldn't take the rail, You buy juice at this stand every day, and you bought those pants two blocks up the street from the lady who sells clothes out of her living room. You want me to tell you what you had for dinner last night, too? Oh, goddess, he breathed. Spare me, Amon sighed. Why do they want you? You blow something up? Plant a virus? Not us, not the gayists. He jerked free of Amon's grip with surprising strength. Fists clenched. That's all a lie. I don't know why they want me. Yeah, they're claiming bioterrorism, but I didn't do it. There wasn't any virus released where they said it happened. How could they do that? Just make something up. His voice had gone shrill. They have to have proof, and they don't have any proof, because it didn't happen. He sounded so much like Avi that Amon had to look away. They just made it all up, huh? He made his voice sound harsh, unbelieving. I guess. The kid looked down, his lip trembling. Yeah, it sounds crazy, huh? I I just don't get why. Why me? I don't even do protests. I just try to save what's left to save. Tell me about your girlfriend. Who? He blinked at Amon, his eyes wet with tears. The one who died. Oh, Raina. He looked down, his expression instantly sad. She really wanted to kick him. The drugs. I tried to help her. She just... She just had so much fear inside. I guess the drugs were the only thing that really helped the fear. I I really tried. So she killed herself? Oh, no. Darren looked up at him, shocked. She didn't want to die. She just didn't want to be afraid. She did the usual hit that morning. I guess the guy she brought it from, he called himself Skin Jack. I guess he didn't cut the stuff right. She OD'd. I went looking for him. Darren flushed. I told myself I was going to beat him up. I guess maybe I wanted to kill him. Because she was getting better. She would have made it. He drew a shaky breath. He just disappeared, that son of a bitch. I kept looking for him, but he was just gone. Maybe he OD'd too, he added bitterly. I sure hope so. All of a sudden it clicked into place. The whole picture. Why? They had reached an empty lot. Someone was growing grapes in it, and as they reached the end of the rose, sudden movement in the shadows caught Amon's eye. Too late. He was so busy sorting it all out, he'd stop paying attention. The figure stepped out of the leaf shadows, a small, ugly gun in his hand. I was right, Jimmy's eyes glittered. Didn't think I was smart enough to track you, huh? I'm stupid, I know, but not that stupid. Actually, I thought you'd be too hung over. Amon spread his hands carefully. I think we're on the same side here, and I think we need to get out of here now. Shut up, Jimmy said evenly, stepping closer, icy with threat. Just shut up. Jimmy? Darren pushed forward, confused. Goddess, I haven't seen you. What are you doing? He found you, Jimmy said between his teeth, for the feds. You're not hiding very well, Darren, you idiot. Everything you buy is a damn tag on it. He looked up your buying habits and picked you out of the crowd, just like that. He laughed about how easy it was. You were too easy for him to even give the job to a newbie like me. Jimmy's eyes burned into the kids. You got to... Amon shifted his weight infinitesimally, made a tiny quick move with his left hand, just enough to catch Jimmy's eye. Jimmy swung right, eyes tracking, gun muzzle following his eyes. Amon grabbed Jimmy's gun hand with his right hand, twisted, heard a snap. With a cry, Jimmy let go of the gun and Amon snatched it from the air just as Darren tackled him, grabbing for the gun. The hissing snap of a gas-powered gunshot ripped the air. Again. Amon tensed, everything happening in slow motion now. No pain. Why no pain? Hot wetness spattered his face and Jimmy sprawled backwards under the grape leaves, arms and legs jerking. Amon rolled, shrugging Darren off as if he weighed nothing, seeing the suit now, three meters away, aiming at Darren. Amon fired. It was a wild shot, crazy shot, the kind you did in sim training sessions and knew you'd never pull off for real. The suit went down. Amon tried to scramble to his feet, but things weren't working right. After a while, Darren hauled him up the rest of the way. White ringed his eyes and he looked ready to pass out from shock. He's dead. Jimmy and the other guy. He clung to Amon as if Amon was supporting him and not the other way around. Goddess, you're... Bleeding. Enough with the goddess already. Amon watched red drops fall from his fingertips. His left arm was numb, but that wouldn't last. Why? What in the... What the hell is going on here? His fingers dug into Amon's arm. Thank you. Hell was about right. We need to get out of here. Do you know the neighborhood? Yeah, sort of. This way. Darren started through the grapes, his arm around Amon. I'm supposed to meet... A ride! This afternoon, a ride to... He gave Amon a sideways worried look. Another place. You're going to have to learn some things. Amon had to catch his breath, or you're going to bring the suits right after you. After that, he stopped talking. The numbness was wearing off. Once, years and years ago, he had worked to his private security, licensed for lethal force, paying his way through school. A burglar shot him one night. It hurt worse than he remembered, like white-hot spears digging into his shoulder and side with every step. He disconnected himself from his body after a while, let it deal with the pain. He wondered about Jimmy's cat. Who would take care of it? Raoul would be pissed, he thought dreamily. Not about Jimmy. Raoul had no trouble finding Jimmy's in the world. But Amon was a lot better than Raoul, better even than Anne Zoyan, although Zoyan didn't think so. Raoul would be pissed. He blinked back to the world of hot afternoon and found himself sitting in dim light, his back against something solid. Man, you were out on your feet, the kid squatted beside him, streaked with sweat, drying blood and gray dust, his face gaunt with exhaustion and fear. Darren, not Jimmy. Jimmy was dead. I don't have any first aid stuff, but it doesn't look like you're bleeding too much anymore. Water? He handed him on a plastic bottle. It's okay. It's from a clean spring. The man didn't really care. He would have drunk from a puddle. The ruins of an old house surrounded him. The front had fallen, or been torn, completely off. But a thick curtain of kudzu vine shrouded the space. Old campfire scars blackened the rotting wooden floor. The belt, he figured. Edge of it, anyway. What happened? Darren's voice trembled. Why did he shoot Jimmy? Who was he? Who were you? The water helped. "'What sent you to get hacked?' Amon asked. "'Someone searched my apartment.' The kid looked away. "'I found a bug in my car. I'm good at finding those. "'I told some of my friends, and they said go invisible. "'It didn't matter if I'd done anything or not. "'They were right,' his voice trembled. "'I'd never do what they said I did.' "'They know you didn't do anything.' Amon closed his eyes and leaned back against the broken plasterboard of the ruined wall. Pain thudded through his shoulder with every beat of his heart. "'It's the guy who killed your girlfriend.' "'Why? I never heard him. I never even found him.' "'You looked for him,' Amon mumbled. "'That scared him.' The kid's blank silence forced his eyes open. "'I'm guessing the local government is running a little drug eradication program, be eliminating the market.' he said heavily, explaining to a child. They cut a deal with the street connections and probably handed them a shipment of altered stuff to put into the pipeline. Sudden big drop in users. Poisoned? Darren whispered. On purpose? Nasty, huh? Election coming up. Numbers count. And who looks twice at an OD and a confirmed user? Amon kept seeing Jimmy's childlike curl on the couch, the cat regarding him patiently couldn't make it go away. Maybe they thought you had proof. Maybe they'd figured out you'd guess and tell your... friends. They might make it public. He started to shrug, sucked in a quick breath. Mistake. Waited for the world to go steady again. I should have guessed that suit would know about Jimmy. He would be tailing him. That was why the long look in the office, memory impressions so the suit could spot him in a crowd. I figured it out just too late. His fault, Jimmy's death. How soon are your people going to pick you up? Soon, I think. The kid was staring at the ground, looked up suddenly. How come you came after me? To arrest me? Listen. Amon pushed himself straighter, gritted his teeth until the pain eased a bit. I told you you're leaving a trail like a neon sign. You listen hard. You've got to think about what you buy. Food, clothes, toothpaste, okay? Okay. He stared into the kid's uncomprehending face, willing him to get it. It's all tagged, even if they say it's not. Don't doubt it. I'm telling you the truth here, okay? The kid closed his mouth and nodded. You don't buy exactly the opposite. That's a trail we can follow, too. But you buy random. Maybe vegan stuff this time. Maybe a pair of synth leather pants off the rack at a big chain next purchase. Something you'd never spend cash on. Not even before you became a gayist. Got it? You think about what you really want to buy the food, the clothes, the snacks, toys, services, and you only buy them every fifth purchase, then every fourth, then every seventh. Got it? Random. You do that, buy stuff you don't want, randomly and without a chip, and you won't make a clear track. You'll be so far down on the profile that the searcher won't take you seriously. I've been buying in the belt, the kid protested. Doesn't matter. He'd explained why to Jimmy. Couldn't do it again. Didn't have the strength. Let his eyes droop closed. Hey, the kid's voice came to him from a long way away. I gotta know, how come you came after me? To tell me how to hide from you? You really want me to believe that? I don't care if you do or not. Amon struggled to open his eyes, stared into the blurry green light filtering through the kudzu curtain. I'm not sure how come I followed you. Maybe because he hadn't asked why, and Jimmy had maybe because Avi had been right and the job had changed him after all. But why? You a closet gayist? Amon wanted to laugh at that, but he didn't. It would hurt too much. Voices filtered through nightmares full of teeth. People talking. No more green light, so it must be almost dark. Or maybe he was dying. Hard to tell. Footsteps scuffed and the kid's face swam into view. Jimmy's at first. Morphing into the other kid, Darren. He tried to say the name, but his mouth was too dry. We're going to drop you at an emergency clinic. Darren leaned close, his eyes anxious. But, well, I thought maybe uh, you want to go with us. I mean, they're going to find out you killed that Fed guy, right? You'll go to prison. Yes, they would find out, but he knew how it worked. They'd hold the evidence and the case open no reason to risk pointing some investigative reporter toward the little dope deal they'd been covering up. They'd had expectations, and he'd met them, and Jimmy's death would turn out to have been another nasty little killing in the belt. He could adopt Jimmy's cat, no harm done, just between us. "'I'll come with you,' he croaked. "'You could use some help with your invisibility, and I have the track to the proof you need about that drug deal. Make the election interesting.' "'Wasn't pleading,' Not that. Trade. You can't come chipped. A woman looked over Darren's shoulder, Hispanic, ice cold, with an air that said she was in charge. And we got to go now. I know. At least the chip was in his good shoulder. She did it, using a tiny laser scalpel with a deft sureness that suggested med school or even an MD. And it hurt, but not a lot compared to the glowing coals of pain in his left arm and then they were loading him into the back of a vehicle and it was fully dark outside. He was invisible, right now. He no longer existed in the electronic reality of the city. If he made it back to his apartment, it wouldn't let him in. The corner store wouldn't take his card or even cash. He felt naked. No, he felt as if he no longer existed. Death wasn't as complete as this. Wondered if Avi had felt like this at first. I probably could have found him, he thought, if I'd had the guts to try. I'm glad you're coming with us, Darren sat beside him as the truck or whatever it was rocked and bucked over broken pavement toward the nearest clear street. Leah says you probably won't die. I'm thrilled. Maybe we can use the drug stuff to influence the election, get someone honest elected. He was as bad as Jimmy, Amon thought, but why not hope? you like the head of our order, Darren said thoughtfully. He's not a whole lot older than me, but he's great. Really brilliant, and he cares about every person in the order. She really matters to him. The earth, I mean. Avi will really welcome you. Avi. Amon closed his eyes. Hey, you okay? Darren had him by the shoulders. Don't die now. Not after all this. He sounded panicky. I won't, Amon whispered. He managed a tiny laugh that didn't hurt too bad. Maybe it hadn't been the final fight after all. could almost make him believe in Avi's goddess. Almost. Your head of the order sucks at hiding, he whispered, and fainted.
2: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mary's. Mary, thank you so much. Like I say, we've played a number of stories by Mary, but hopefully we'll get, we'll get a few more anyways of Mary's back catalogue because I just think it's fantastic, right? Just exciting science fiction, do you know what I mean? Just a, sto- a good storyteller. Yeah, just that's what I want, do you know what I mean? And Mary kind of hits all nails on heads on me with that. Mary, thank you so much. And Mike, I know you're busy, but you know what I mean? I just, I want more, more. <laughs> that's it for Starship over. I hope you enjoyed it. Do listen out until next week and, you know, do pop over, you know, please take part in the kind of the black hole sale. It's probably, you know, if you've kind of been humming and hawing, this is a good chance to treat yourself to it. So do look out for that. Links are on the website. And I'm soon be rattling up, rattling up the how to write science fiction with Spider Robinson. I've knocked out a date, which will be, I think it's the, oh it is, it's the 26th of January. Now I'll put it back a little bit just to kind of get over the Christmas holidays, 26th of January. And it'd actually be 8pm my time, which is because <laughs> Spiders is what was really funny. Spiders told you I'll never get up because I like to kind of normally do it round about 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. This is what normal times I do these workshop events. And it's just 4 o'clock's so a little bit time where the internet, my side of things, isn't getting choked up with everyone jumping on, and it's a sad day. You know, everyone's off at the weekend, or most people's off at the weekend. And it's just a little bit easier. But Spider just said, Tony, I'll just never make that kind of time because I think, you know, it's probably about 8 o'clock in the morning. And he says, I don't kind of surface till about 11. Do you know what I mean? With about six cups of coffee. So I've kind of sneaked it back. I've had to clear it with the boss because it means I'm recording this at 8 o'clock at night. Well, you know what I mean? House is just hectic that time of night on a, on a Saturday after, on a Saturday evening. So we'll see how it goes. So I'll be if putting together, you know, like all the kind of publicity for that as well. So if you're interested in the Spider Robinson one, you know, I think Spider'll have a just a fantastic history and talk. Do you know what I mean? It's been, you know, his kind of world's been rocked of late with the loss of Jeannie's wife. But taking all that in account, you know, the, the stories, you know, Spider was for one of the best narrators on Starship over with his story and his stories won as well. Do you know what I mean? Oh, fantastic writer as well. So I'm dying to hear just what Spider delivers. So that's coming soon as well. So until next week, I'd just like to say goodnight from me.
1: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? and they escape without completely compromising their
0: honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Sushi Sofa, a valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for us. Airlock will be
1: opened in 3, 2, 1.